Welcome to Bard Talk. I'm your host, Josh. And right off the top, I am so sorry. Uh, last week sucked. Um, just to give you a quick recap, um, I had quit my job. I was offered a job with a leading parcel delivery company. I'm not going to say their name. But they kind of promised me a lot more than what they could deliver. And, you know, my bad for having faith in humanity, I guess. I don't know, believing somebody at face value. But what ended up happening was I was transferred way far away. Um, Not promised anything that I was promised when I actually left my other job to take this one. And the result would have been a one hour and 20 minute drive on a good day without traffic um, just to get there and then 12 or 14 hour days while I was there and literally the only way you would get work was to jockey for it. So if they asked you to take a job that paid less, you had to do it. Um, If they asked you to work half nights, half days, you had to do it. Like basically the company believed that any time at all was their time and that you would be lucky to have a life um, outside of that. Now, if you put in your nine months and you did really good, you got hooked up in the union, the benefits were amazing, um, regardless whether you were part-time or full-time, didn't matter, uh, and the pay was was great if you got full-time. Um, getting full-time means getting assigned a route, so they have to have enough business to assign you your own route and provide you with a truck and and so on and so forth. So uh, at face value, it sounded like a good thing. Um, But when you realize that they were hiring thousands of people and literally pumping people into the system because the way they've designed it doesn't really work for most people. Uh, It's really hard if you have a family or you have debt obligations, as most of us do in this this climate, to to live like that. And so they have a washout rate. And guess what? I counted towards one of their washouts because I, I can't do it. Um, well, to say I can't do it would be wrong. I certainly hold guilt for not trying. But truth be told, um, I feel like my talents are better spent helping people. And so in that whole mix of things, I had applied and gotten the, uh, the, the go ahead for a really great job. I'm going to be working for a hospital as an EMT, um, running a brand new division, their new transport division. And it really is boundless for somebody like me who has spent their whole life as a first responder. This job couldn't be more tailor-made. Um, it's, it's, it's a great company. They offer benefits that I've never had in my life on top of tuition reimbursement, which is going to be key for me finishing up my education. And, and you know, truly, I'm not giving up on my dream on a paid municipal fire job. Um, I think that they're going to offer me the advantages to get into one. So we'll see where that goes. But last week... Um, for this parcel company with two days notice they wanted me to pack everything up and go to a hotel for a week and go through their training course so I did Um, mostly because it was a paid week and I needed a paycheck and I figured I'd give it a good shake Um, but the instructors uh, were very honest with me about what what the company was going to expect and how we were going to have to jockey for jobs and it really just kind of cemented home that it wasn't the job for me. I know it sounds dumb and certainly like it may 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 have been, you know, in retrospect could have been a bad decision, but I have a lot going on that I find important and fulfilling. Uh, being a volunteer firefighter is one of those things to me that is important and it means a lot. And it's a big aspect of my life, and I don't want to give that up. 
even for a job that could offer me ridiculous amounts of money. Money isn't everything. And unfortunately, the state that I live in, the Commonwealth, is suffering this all over. Like, we are losing volunteer firefighters at a ridiculous rate because of this. Because people need higher paying jobs. They need to dedicate their their lives to their work just to, you know, hold the middle ground. And they don't have time. And if everybody put themselves first, uh, we wouldn't have any volunteer firefighters. And the fire protection in this area would be nil, uh, absent. Um, I could go, I could launch into a whole thing. I'm not going to, the, the short end of it is I wasn't available to do a podcast last week because I wasn't home. I was in a hotel and I didn't bring provisions, um, to do the podcast just for my phone, mostly because I'm dedicated to the quality of this podcast and I want it to be good. I want it to have all the elements. I want it to have repeatable elements that you, you, I at least learn is my brand and you enjoy or mock or make fun of or whatever the reason is. I don't care. I just want to have a format that's the same every week and gives you what you come to this podcast for. So I met somebody um, while I was onboarding for this new job. I, I have, oh my God, I have so many tasks to do for this job. And I met somebody and if she's listening, hi, uh, I, I miss you. Like we, we had a connection. It was great. She's one of the most beautiful souls ever. And it will be my mission to get her on this podcast. God, do I want to talk to her so bad, interview her more or less. Um, but we started talking and I, and I mentioned, I ran a, uh, a podcast called Bard Talk. And it was funny because her reaction was like, Oh, Bard, like, you know, Dun- Dungeons and Dragons. And I get that a lot. And it's, it, it's always amusing to me because yes, I think that's probably the most colloquially known, uh, definition for what a bard is. Of course, in, in, in ancient Celtic times, hard sea Celtic, um, bards were poets. They were musicians. They were storytellers. Their, their purpose in the, the villages was to preserve the history and, and rich culture of their clan and, and to be a teacher, to be uh, a learned person who, who could pass on wisdom and knowledge. And, and, and a lot of times they took the role of a healer. And it was a very universal kind of fit for them. And, and, and that's, that was my aim with the podcast. Um, was just to kind of run this variety where I sang and I told stories and maybe we talked about poetry. Um, but I also wanted to teach people about the world around them, to teach them about the naturalistic world around them. So, you know, in preparation for this week's podcast, I wanted to come back with a bang. I wanted to hit the ground running with something cool, some cool stories, some some poetry, some music. I don't know. I wanted to go. And, uh, of course, you know, what's the date today? Well, it's 11, four. And if you don't live in America, it, it doesn't bear a whole lot of significance. If you do live in America, you know, that today is like D day plus one. Uh, we generally have elections on the third, uh, we have midterms and we have the presidential election, which includes a couple other pieces of the puzzle. And that's topic that that is top of everybody's mind. And so I sat here uh, for the better part of the morning trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go. I had a I had a story queued up. I was going to talk about man's fascination with automobiles. And I thought that would be a good direction to go, like a nice distracty. Let's talk about something fun, something that you're going to hear a lot of joy come out of my voice. Um, And then I thought it a little irresponsible. Uh, you know, this is not a political podcast. I have made it clear that this isn't a political podcast. Um, but to ignore politics altogether is also to ignore the reality of the world that we live in. And so I kind of, I started thinking about, uh, what are the biggest questions? What are the biggest problems that we face here in 2020? Um, a lot of them aren't new problems. Uh, some of them are created problems. 
um, this year in particular, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a viral pandemic that has swept the entire globe. It is, you know, in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, AIDS, of course, comes in real close. AIDS is has been kind of tossed out the back window as not truly being the forefront of medical research or top of mind. Um, and unfortunately, you know, people die from HIV AIDS every year. Uh, the, the numbers have decreased. We have come up with some preventative vaccines that have a certain level of effectiveness. Of course, uh, the education with uh, prophylactics and ways you can keep yourself safe have certainly increased greatly and, and, and all to the betterment of society. But the overlying issue of infectious disease control is something that mankind, humankind, sorry, I try very hard to use very gender neutral pronouns when I can. Humankind has always dealt with the issues of disease and infection, and we always will. Um, I watched and listened to and read a couple really interesting articles and and things. Um, of course, top of mind, I cannot recommend it enough. David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, uh, one of the most prolific, most famous naturalist ever. And certainly of our time, but ever really, truly did a wonderful documentary on Netflix. Um, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. There's ways to get around having to pay to see it. But he, he made it a witness statement that he has on nature. Highly recommend. Go watch it. It's beautiful. You'll cry your eyes out at the end. Um, so that, of course, is going to impact what I'm going to talk about. I read a, a wonderful article about the way they're trying to combat COVID-19 or SARS-2, um, depending on who you're talking to and what you're looking at, and the different technologies we're using to come up with an antivirus for this, uh, a vaccine, if you will. So that was really interesting. And of course, the 800-pound elephant in the room is politics. So I'm going to do my best in the 45 minutes I've left myself to try to bang out all of these things and how I feel you can make a difference at home. Let's do a quick recap of the whole COVID issue. Uh, many, many episodes ago, I talked about COVID-19 and the difference between viruses and bacteria and why, why bacteria isn't any less dangerous than a virus, but what a virus does. So just to recap that so you don't have to go back and listen to that episode, unless you want to, it's a good episode. Um, viruses are smaller than bacteria. They're smaller than cells even, and that's their job. They attach to a cell via a protein spike, and then they take over the transcription in that cell. So your cell has a DNA code and an RNA transcription code, and that tells the cell what it has to become or what it wants to become. Viruses intercept that transcription, change that, that wording more or less. I'm trying to dumb this down the best I can, but they change that code so that that cell then replicates more virus. And that is a whole episode on its own how it happens, so I'm not going to bog you down too much with it. But this is the difference, and this is going to be a game changer in medicine moving forward. Because the old way of coming up with a vaccine was to insert either a horse or an egg, most commonly egg. I, you know, how many of you have gone and gotten a, a vaccine and when you're filling out the form, it asks you if you're allergic to eggs. If that is the case, that is because that virus was injected into an egg. The virus took over all the cells in the egg and started replicating. And then when it dies out or they have come up with a solution for the protein spike in it, they then inject that, that dead virus or what they call an adenovirus into you. And it's, it's inert. It can't hurt you. Your white blood cells 
see it as an invasion of, of your body and they attack it. And once they learn what that protein spike is, that receptor and what the, the virus looks like, they know how to defend for it. That's why you can get like a tetanus shot and it's good for years. That's why you can get a hep B shot and you rarely need boosters because once your body learns what that virus is, how it attaches to your cells, it has a certain memory system that works splendidly and it, it'll prevent any further infection of that particular virus in your body. So unfortunately, that requires you to have the live virus at hand for you to do testing with. And it also requires you to do extensive testing. You have to see how long that thing's going to incubate in an egg, how long it can survive outside of an egg. The whole process is very slow. And in some cases, um, the virus can't survive in the egg or it doesn't work out. Um, chicken eggs, duck eggs, whatever they tend to use as a medium, sometimes that doesn't work at all. So what China did real early on was they sequenced the genome of the virus. They actually broke it down element by element. And in doing so, it gave scientists and researchers the ability to pull the, the virus apart without ever having a live copy. And because of that, we've been experimenting with two brand new state-of-the-art technologies called genetic vaccines and viral vector. So they work similarly um, in that the goal is to identify the protein spike that the virus uses to attach to your cell and then figure out a way to block that. With genetic vaccines, what they tend to do is they, they sequence that specific protein block and then they put that protein either in an adenovirus, so a virus that causes mild flu-like symptoms or makes the person asymptomatic depending on their genetic makeup. But instead of that virus replicating itself, it tells your cells to replicate the protein spike for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. Um, I think the scientific community is calling it SARS-CoV-2. I think uh, colloquially, you know, we know it as COVID-19. But Regardless of, of, of the, uh, the wording used, that's what your, your, GN, your DNA virus uh, vaccine is going to come to, is it's going to be carried in another virus. That virus's RNA coding or DNA coding is going to be to replicate the protein spike without the attached virus so that your white blood cells can identify just the receptor, just the protein spike that coronaviruses use to attach to your cells and block that. And that should, in theory, that should be a vaccine against COVID-19. Um, the other one that we talked about was the viral vector. And the viral vector is almost similar. Um, it's more of just taking that protein spike and replicating it and then injecting you with the protein, a synthetic version of that protein spike so that your white blood cells can identify it, know how to find it, and then attack it as soon as it enters your body. Uh, they're very similar. They require far less research because you can almost do everything on a computer with just gene sequencing. Um, both the viral vector and the gene sequence versions of the vaccines are in phase three trials, which means they have an actual liquid version of that vaccine and they're injecting it into humans and people are giving the reports like, you know, how they felt after the injection, whether or not they were exposed to COVID-19 and whether it offered them any, any type of protection. Uh, the goal for this project is to have one ready for distribution by January 1. And that's not conjecture from the orange man at the top. That is, that's coming from AstraZeneca, Merck, all of the companies leading to this. What this means on the grand scale, however, is that that's how we're going to go forward. We're not going to be looking at having our hands on actual live viruses. We're going to be looking at the gene sequencing of viruses. And this could be huge for things like AIDS, um, HIV AIDS, uh, the precursor to AIDS. It could be big for hepatitis, hepatitis C, um, a lot of uh, malaria, the diseases that people tend to get 
um, in undeveloped countries, and then people tend to get through uh, unsafe practices like sharing needles, um, unprotected sex, things of that nature. This is going to revolutionize the way that we come up with with vaccines, frankly, and it's going to make them better and safer. Uh, and you probably picked up on the whole adenovirus thing. And I will say that uh, all of the companies are taking a different approach. Some of them are using an adenovirus that chimps get. Some of them are using human adenoviruses. And they believe that at best case scenario is a certain percentage of the population will be completely asymptomatic and a certain percentage of the population are going to have minor flu-like symptoms. So that is kind of when they develop a flu vaccine for for the year they they're they're predicting and they're looking at the most popular models of the coronavirus that we commonly get so the common flu and they're trying to pick as many strains as they can that are compatible and will work together in a vaccine and then they're giving you an adenovirus and that's why a lot of people who get the flu virus will report flu-like symptoms they'll say oh i got the flu virus vaccine and and I got the flu. Well, no, you didn't get the flu per se. You got an adenovirus, which has flu-like symptoms. And, and, and they're generally minor. It's not anything like getting the full-blown flu. And, and that's just the price we pay for vaccination. Um, it's one of the reasons we're living longer. It's one of the reasons people are healthier. Um, and it ties into my next topic, which... Uh, I, this one, this story was something I heard on Radio Lab, and if you don't listen to Radio Lab, it's a podcast, much like this one, that's way more professional and hosted by the NYC studios up in New York, and they recently did one on the fungal barrier, and it, I, I bring it up because I found it interesting that uh, 80 million years ago we had a catastrophic event, uh, an asteroid crashed into the planet. And it wiped out most of the life, all of the life as we know it, but it wiped out most of the life. And what scientists found right afterwards was, at, you know, of course, all the dinosaurs were killed off. Only the mammals that were deep burrowing mammals um, who didn't require extensive or exhaustive resources to survive were able to make it. And then, of course, reptiles. And it's something I'd never thought about before, but uh, we take for granted that the mammal spec is the highest spec to play this game on. Mammals are very abundant. You look around and you see mammals everywhere. Um, and you don't really see any dominant reptiles, with the exception of, I think, like crocodiles and alligators might be top tiers in their biomes. But for the most part, I want to say that mammals have, have it made in the shade. And that's only due in part because of our body temperature so if you look at things if you were a betting person and you looked at the way life exists uh, you look at the mammal spec so we are we we can regulate our own body temperatures um, we can regulate our 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 outer temperature our inner temperature our bodies have the ability to adapt so you can go into a state of shock where it'll pull the blood flow from your extremities and hold it to your vital organs for a short period of time we have a lot of adaptive capabilities but we do require a ton of resources a lot of mammals are omnivores which is great we can eat plants um, we can eat meats we can eat all sorts of things whereas most reptiles eat other things they they're they're carniv carnivores there's there's exceptions of course i mean iguanas uh bearded dragons a lot of them uh need a mixture of insects and 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 vegetables and a lot of geckos eat primarily uh rotten fruit so there are some 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 variants into that but they don't eat nearly as much reptiles don't they're not geothermic they don't regulate their own body temperature they use external resources for that so they don't have a constant furnace to feed whereas mammals have a constant need to intake calories in order to burn a portion of those calories just staying warm um, and because of this following the 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 asteroid impact 
it, it truly was the age of the reptile. You had a bunch of creatures that just needed to be kept warmish, like in the 70s to survive. Um, and because they were being kept colder, they required even less resources. So snacking on our, our mam mammalian ancestors, snacking on insects that certainly survived, um, and whatever vegetation they could get a hold of, it was very advantageous for them. And what scientists found was uh, the great mushroom barrier or the fungal barrier. Um, so fungus, if you're not aware, hates heat. Um, in fact, anything over 80 degrees starts to trigger a breakdown in most of their proteins. They become uh, un untenable, unsolvent, and, and they start to degrade and fall apart. So it's why summer mushrooms are so rare um, and, and you don't really see them in warm climates. There's no mushrooms in the desert for obvious reasons, but uh, mushrooms really enjoy colder. Like their sweet spot is somewhere around 50, 60 degrees, um, even down into the 40s. And I mean, I've seen mushrooms burst up right around the frost barrier uh, up in my parts of the woods. It doesn't seem to bother them at all. And so mammals evolved to be resistant to fungal infection by having a higher temperature. They could sustain higher temperatures, and this really uh, assisted them in fighting off fungal infections, whereas reptiles were completely reliant on external uh, atmospheric conditions. So they needed to bask in the sun and kind of charge their batteries and bring their, their core temperature up, or they needed to find a warm place. Uh, a volcanic river or, or some place that offered them. And if you can imagine post-asteroid world, it just wasn't a thing. Um, and the reason I bring this all up, I'm going to tell you, go listen to that, that, that uh, Radio Lab episode. I'll try to link it in the description, but it was really fascinating. Um, scientists today have found the most developed countries uh, are having an issue with fungal infections again. And, and part of this is because obviously fungal fungi or fungi are evolving to be more heat resistant. They're starting to tolerate warmer and warmer temperatures, but also in the developed worlds where medicine is readily available, we don't have a stress factor. Uh, our evolution isn't being guided by necessity. It's being guided by our own hand more. And so as we have access to clean water and, and better nutrition, and we live a lifestyle that doesn't put so much external stress on us, physical external stress, our body temperature is coming down. And it's starting to make us more susceptible to fungal infections, deadly fungal infections that we haven't seen in, in people. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I'm not going to dwell too much on it, but it was one of those problems that, you know, we're going to have to address at some point. We're going to have to figure out not only antiviruses or antiviral vaccines, but we're going to have to come up with antifungal applications. Um, and that again, is going to come down to learning about the genome, learning about how DNA sequencing can keep us safe from external factors that we are no longer being uh, given immunity to via evolution because we don't have a hard lifestyle to live. So I'm going to move on. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm nailing my time. I, I have little times written down that I want to spend on each topic topic and move it along and I'm just I'm, I'm killing it so David Attenborough's uh, wonderful wonderful presentation I can't suggest it enough really lays out how a man in 70 years has seen this planet drastically change um, I know at least I feel for the most part the people that would listen to this podcast it isn't a group of people I would hope that would just deny blatant science or, or, you know, come up with wild conspiracy theories for why the things happened. And, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't think that documentary covered everything. I don't think it, it did as much justice to the topic as it could. I mean, this was only one guy. He had like an hour and a half to fill 
and I think he did the best he could. And sometimes just sounding the alarm is enough to get people thinking. It's one of the main tenets of this podcast is just to get people interested enough to do their own research so that I'm not just spewing answers at everybody. But, you know, he talked about climate change and the influence that man has and, and the, the, the conclusion that I can't disagree with at all is that we no longer live in a wild world. We live in a world completely and utterly shaped by our hands. Uh, there's no part of the globe anymore that doesn't have man's influence on it or humankind's influence. That's the second time I've done it. I'm getting bad at this for some reason. The, we, there's no part of the world that doesn't have human influences. Um, the wild plains of Africa are not wild anymore. They're strips. Uh, Borneo forests, the rainforest. We are destroying this planet at a catastrophic rate. We have reached mile markers and goalposts that are going to bring irreparable damage if we just stopped everything. Um, certainly. Certainly, our CO2 pollution or CO pollution, well, and carbon dioxide pollution is at an all-time high. And and methane and the stuff that we're doing, we we are not only are we a cancer on this planet, but we're also a wasteful cancer. Um, I think cancer looks at us and goes, "You hey, listen, I'm evil, but I'm not that evil that I kind of like just waste half of the stuff I use." Um, it's, it's truly a shame. And, and at the end, he talked about easy solutions. He talked about things that everybody could do that would make a great impact. And that is something often I feel is so lost in the quagmire of this whole conversation. Because, you know, people, I've said it before, people don't want difficult. They, they want, they want repetitive, easy, intuitive things. That's why we like Apple, right? You pick up your iPhone and all the iPhones are the same. They all work relatively similar. All of the applications work the same. You don't have to go in and jiggle about and fiddle with the settings. This is the phone. This is what it does. It does it really well. And it does it without your constant attention and input. When it comes time to update, you go to bed, you plug it in, it updates if you have your settings set to that. But I mean, it's, they're very carefree. Whereas uh, computer programs like Linux or Linux, um, I'm not a Linux guy, so bear with me here, but they're much more complicated. They give you much more control. They give you so much more product on offer, but they're not intuitive. The things don't come easy. You have to learn the platform. You have to learn how it works. You have to invest time and energy into being a Linux person to understand it. And the same thing for, for Android. I was an Android guy for a long time. I like Android. My problem isn't really with the software per se, I think some of the software was glitchy. My issue was always with the actual platforms. Um, I had a couple Samsung phones that were pretty good. And then I was really, really, really a big fan of Android itself, the Android brand phones. And I think when Android had the phones first, when it was just Android, they were pretty good. I think when they sold out to Lenovo, they became junk. Um, and I know people that have had LGs and, and Samsungs and, and the, the difference between the people that have those phones and have an Apple iPhone 3 is the Apple iPhone 3 still works. I mean, and they'll still turn on. I know people that run four S's to this day, like they last forever and people like that. They, they like the repetitiveness of life. So when somebody gets on and says, oh, well, I want you to sell all of your trucks, all of your diesel trucks. I want you to sell your muscle cars and your Harley Davidson's and everybody needs to go to electric. And, and, and the only way to curb climate change is if everybody stops eating meat and stops doing this and, and you burden people right out of your argument. And he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. And God bless him. That is the kind of that is the kind of person that talks to me. I know everybody really liked Greta Thunberg. 
and her her righteous anger at the inaction of things but that kind of vitriol doesn't catch the flies um I'm not even going to say it. Everybody knows the saying, but there's a certain amount of love and tenderness that we have to express when we're teaching any lesson or asking for help. And in this case, we're asking people to help themselves. And you would think it would be a no-brainer, but but truly, we have to appeal to everybody's better parts of their conscious. Um, one of the things that he brought up is that as we elevate everybody, and I do mean everybody in this world, we elevate ourselves right out of this climate issue. We elevate ourselves out of consuming resources unnecessarily. He talked about Japan and in the 1960s and 70s, the average Japanese household had three to four kids. And this caused their population to, to explode. And as technologies got better and they became more advanced and medicine got better and, and their way of living elevated, their quality of life elevated, the amount of children that they had leveled off. And I think he said it's down to like each family having two. And that's on average. There's certainly families that, that have none. Um, and that has kept the population in Japan steady. It hasn't gone up. It hasn't gone down. It's been just rock steady. And that's something that that truly, I, I'm, I hate to say it, but you look at these people that have multiple kids, this old style of thinking, you know, that you have to outnumber your enemy with, with like-minded. So you have six or seven or eight kids, um, Christian kids to go out and spread the gospel or, or, you know, the, the, the Catholic way of, you know, not using prophylactics and, and having large families. Um, some of it is cultural. Some of it's not religious at all. It's just cultural, uh, uh, thoughts that, you know, you have a big family that kind of mindset has to be addressed. That kind of mindset has to be looked at and realized that it's destructive. It is harmful for the environment if you go out and you you multiply your family into an untenable, unsustainable number for the population. Um, yeah, America is vast. And, and we're terrible at looking around and going, oh my God, you know, I can walk down my lane and it's a mile both ways to my first neighbor and there's so much land. How could we be overpopulated? But the truth is there's no part in America that's wild. There's no part in America where you can go. All of our preserved national parks, everything has had some of its biodiversity removed or it's been cut back to just a small sliver. We are a huge farming country. Most of the land in America is used to create food, and that demand for food is because we are inhibitionly, maybe that's the wrong word, we, we, are, we are breeding, we're having too many kids, and our population numbers are going up, and the requirements um, on the, the resources goes up as well. He did talk about uh, switching over to rene- renewable resources using things like solar, wind, air, water resources. Um, and I'll tell you the one point of the documentary that really, um, I, it made me sad. It gave me pause, but it was, he left out nuclear. And, and if I got a collective eye roll from that, uh, you know, uh, yes, everyone, everyone remembers Chernobyl. HBO did a great job scaring everybody with Chernobyl again. Um, The Fukushima, the most recent Fukushima power plant catastrophe was horrible. Um, Certainly mistakes were made on the safeguards on that. Mistakes were made on the placement of that plant. Um, If you live in Pennsylvania, you remember Three Mile Island. Now, Three Mile Island wasn't a meltdown. It was close. It was close. But the thing is, um, in America and in Japan and, and in, in all of the developed world, including Russia now, we don't use graphite rods. And yes, I said that obviously to appeal to people who watched the Chernobyl uh, show on HBO. But the truth of the matter is, we don't use uranium. 
uranium is difficult to mine. Uh, it's unstable. It needs to be enriched. The amount of work that goes into it is ridiculous. And there isn't even a whole lot of it on Earth's crust. Um, instead, we use thorium. And thorium is super plentiful. It doesn't do anything on its own. It needs a little helper. It requires a little bit of plutonium to get activated. It doesn't produce nearly the amount of waste. In fact, most of the waste from a nuclear power plant comes from the plutonium, not the thorium. And we use boron rods. Um, rods that are, are definitely not anywhere near the type of volatile that graphite is, or if, as fragile. I mean, boron is also used in the construction of automobiles as a strengthening steel for impacts, if that gives you any idea. If you're curious, go take your pencil and push it against the ground and watch the graphite snap apart. Now go take a boron rod and bash it off a tree for an hour, and I'll bet you you won't get anywhere. So my point being is that if we dig up one pound of thorium, add less than an ounce of plutonium near it, not even in it, but near it, and we create a power plant the size of my house that could produce enough energy to put to sleep, I don't know, a hundred coal plants? I mean, a scientist have estimated that just one pound of thorium and plutonium mixture produces enough energy or produces the same amount of energy as 230 million tons of coal i think the answer is pretty obvious and 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 the only byproduct of a nuclear power plant is moisture into the air white fluffy light bouncing clouds um i think it's a no-brainer i'm really surprised it wasn't brought up in the documentary uh i think everybody is largely afraid of nuclear power I, I live in an area close to a nuclear power plant. That power plant produ produces enough electricity, I'm pretty sure, for the tri-state area. And, of course, you know, I'm on the response team. If there ever were to be a problem, I'm going to be the guy scrubbing all of the uh, radiation particles off the various responding vehicles and personnel. It's not a great job, but it's the one I got uh, if it happens. So I think part of the issue is nobody wants to see a nuclear power plant in their backyard because all of the nuclear power plants that we see in America are from the 70s and 80s. They're these huge giant cooling towers, whereas the actual reactors are deep below the ground. Um, they take up an ungainly amount of room. Uh, the technologies inside the reactors themselves are, are modern and new and uh, nuclear radiation, uh, the Nuclear Power and Energy Committee is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the world. I think, I think it's second to none. To be honest with you, I think close is probably aviation and then nursing homes if you live in America. But modern nuclear power plants don't take up nearly the square footage. Um, you're talking a very small, small footprint. Uh, they can put them in remote areas. It doesn't really matter. It just needs a water source. So I, I, I find that to be a, a big, a big part of one of the things that we could do to just get rid of coal plants. I'm not saying like, listen, for the average consumer, don't go sell your, your Harley Davidson. Don't go sell your big black Corvette just yet. Um, those things are going to happen in time as we come up with just better technologies. I, I can tell you, um, I loved my dad's 73 Roadrunner. I loved my 70 Charger. I loved my 87 Trans Am. I mean, I've been a muscle car guy my whole life. Um, my 2018 Charger Scat Pack has a 392-inch big block Hemi motor in it. I get 20 miles to the gallon. Uh, I think my Trans Am got 6 or 8 gallons to the mile, and my 70 Charger got like 300 or, or 3,420 feet to gallon. I mean, <laughs> it, technology is going to push us into a response mode. Um, right now there's a big horsepower war going on and a speed war and the car companies are loving it. And frankly, as a consumer, I'm loving it. But that only lasts for so long. And then we're going to start to see the need for 
fuel economy. We're going to start to see the need for longevity. People are going to want something. We're going to hit that pinnacle of car production where we have gotten a car as fast as something on wheels will go. And I don't see a future where everybody goes out, gets into their garage, into a a Bugatti Veyron F4, and goes to work at 350 miles an hour. It's just not, it's, those cars only have a niche, and that niche is so infinitesimally small, I don't see that being an issue. And yeah, the, the, the gorilla in the room with me here are big trucks, and in America we have an infatuation with pickup trucks. We have an infatuation with really large pickup trucks with giant big block gas motors or huge diesel motors. Well, those diesel motors now have equipment on them that limit their pollution. And generally, the combustion ratios and the technology on those engines, they were already far past what a gasoline motor was as far as efficiency goes. Diesel isn't refined nearly to the level of gasoline, and overall I think diesel motors are a far better fit. The The reason everybody doesn't have a diesel motor is cost, but if you sit on the manufacturers to produce certain fuel economy lines, you're going to see things like the Ram EcoDiesel. There's a half-ton truck that has a six-cylinder diesel motor that has many people reporting fuel mileages into the 30 miles per gallon on average and in towing you're talking like 14 17 miles per gallon whereas gasoline equivalents it's not even worth talking about it they can't come anywhere close um i think dodge uh the new the new uh what's it called stellantis brand is going to bring about more innovation we're already seeing it in jeeps they're coming out with ev hybrids so they're combining four cylinder power plants that produce enough electricity to power the electric motors in the vehicles and and i i don't i don't think that electrical vehicles are the answer um per se because i do believe that the resources required for the batteries the lithium and things of that nature are costly to mine the mining operations are horrible for the planet and i think if they ever switched into a mainstream version of the automobile i think we'd just be digging we'd be digging up the earth and instead of for fossil fuel for lithium and and nickel and all other kinds of stuff and i don't see that shift as being a solution to the problem Uh, i think I think instead we're going to see solutions like like the one VW came up with where you basically have a drill battery the size of a small vacuum cleaner and you go to the refueling station and you're just swapping out batteries. And so then you don't have to make a vehicle super heavy, full of batteries that are going to go bad and make the vehicle worthless. You're going to have a bunch of battery packs. Now, again, we're just shifting that issue of, well, we still have to mine nickel. We still have to mine lithium. We're going to have to figure out solutions for this. And some of those solutions may come in the, the ways of, uh, of solar power. Some of those solutions may come into gel batteries and, and, and things separate from the technologies we have now. But just like the vaccines where, you know, we had a global pandemic come and it's caused us to think and different ways of coming up with vaccines, we're going to come up with different solutions to this. And it may just be alternative fuels. We may look at hydrogen someday as an alternative fuel that really works. Um, it's it's the, the opportunities are endless. And if you keep your mind open to the good possibilities I think that's where we're going to find solutions. You can't just harp on somebody that they need to do things differently. I I agree with David Attenborough in that we need to raise all of humanity. We need to get these countries that are in the developing nation status elevated. And we need to bring their quality of life up so they're not producing a surplus of people and population numbers aren't growing population numbers of humans far outnumber everything but insects and the resources amounts it takes for every human being on this planet is exponentially more than any other animal on this planet and it's unsustainable we we have less than 50 percent of this planet is forest and woodlands and clean oceans and we need efforts to do that and these are small things i think 
that everybody could get behind that would change the the decline because ultimately what's going to happen is we're going to ruin this planet and it's going to shake us off you know we're going to see the oceans heat up to the point where we don't have sustainable fisheries we don't have any ice caps to block the temperatures parts of this planet that were once lush rainforests are going to become deserts the the air quality is going to get to the point where it's unsustainable for humanity and we will die out we will cause our own uh demise and then the the planet will have to heal itself and it'll take millions of years to get back into the cycle that it was and then the next animal will take over and that's just the way it is and it's going to do that until the sun burns out we have an opportunity to extend our stay and to do so ethically and easily, you know, reducing our meat consumption, reducing our, electric, uh, our electrical consumption, you know, selling old electrical items that we've held on for, forever to, to get more efficient modern ones. Um, but we don't have to go out and sell sell you know your harley davidson or your muscle car you can do so much other things that are more impactful um and i think that's great and you know the the last thing i want to touch on and i'm glad i don't have too much longer to go because i don't want to spend much time on this but you know we we have people who are having panic attacks and high anxiety and this election is affecting them in massive negative ways and I understand the importance some people have um, I understand the people's thought processes um, if you've listened to this podcast prior to this episode uh, if you haven't this is your first episode welcome aboard but go back and listen to the other ones um, I think people know where I stand on a variety of topics and I did one on my my personal politics but you know in this matter I just want to say that we, we are willing participants in this game. We have allowed dinosaurs to flourish in our, in our systems of government. And we've done so because the honeybee part of us has really latched on to the idea of teams and parties. And we have been stuck in this grappling of the two-party system for far too long. And, and unfortunately, what it means is that the people that believe strongly in their party's values and they, and they believe that that party represents a better country, a better version of what they see as the future, they don't get that. We, I, I've seen it in my time where you've had the president, the House and the Senate all monoparty. All the majority controls went to a single party and all of the promises that that party, the platform that party runs on was never delivered because to them, it's just a game. It's just the way they get you to go out and vote. And they're the same person under a different mask. And, and my proposed solution is this, vote them out, vote them out. Every election cycle we have, every two years, you get the opportunity to fundamentally change this broken system, and it is broken, go vote them out. If we could do 12 years, if we could do six cycles of voting every one of these dinosaurs out, everybody who is a part of the problem right now that has, has not acted on COVID relief, who has not acted on climate change, who has not acted in the best interest and has only lined their pockets with more money as previously discussed in that podcast, vote them out everybody make it so that they fear for their job because it won't matter what party somebody belongs to if they know that if they do the same old same old if they continue on with the same rhetoric of promising something and not delivering that they're going to have a four-year term and that is going to shake the alliances. It's going to shake the lobbyists. It's going to shake the natural order that this system has currently locked us into where they can get rich off of alliances and lobbyists and promising the people that are going to pay them big money. And it's going to get rid of the notion that they have their job because they've had their job. 12 years, a cycle of 12 years, six elections where we just annihilate everybody. And then after that 12 years, 
then I think they're going to understand that their job isn't based off of being red, blue, yellow, green. It won't matter. They're, they're going to maintain their jobs based off of their ability to get things done, regardless of what color or letter is in front of that person's name. And you're going to see the important things like creating a no fish zone in the ocean, establishing with the UN one of the largest natural sanctuaries this planet's ever seen. You're going to see them push for a change in, in the way that we regulate our banking industries, the way we regulate all of our industries. You know, I, I truly believe that the Constitution for America was written with the basis that it was, a, that it was the beginning, it was the foundation. Most of it just describes what Congress's function is, how they're elected, their terms that they serve, the different offices within them, the president, the Senate. That's, that's a, just a foundation. It wasn't supposed to be an edifying document that we constantly point to and say, well, this is how we run our country. Like, it was supposed to be the basis. We're supposed to improve it and do better. And we can't do that if we're locked into a system that guarantees that somebody will sit in their job for 40 years without ever making an impact. We can't continue that any more than we can continue the road we're going when it comes to climate change or when it comes to this country. Like we have to, everybody has to make a sacrifice. They have to change their ideals. They have to change up the way they do things. And we could fundamentally turn this government on its ankles if we just stopped playing. If everybody stopped holding the table and let the game fall to the ground, it would stop. They wouldn't be able to predict elections. They wouldn't be able to predict uh, how to draw congressional lines or district lines. They wouldn't be able to do anything. The entire system would come crashing down because every two years we would go to the polls and we would get out the person in office. And we would just continue to do that until we had a brand new Congress. And then you had to do that. You would have to do that to them too. They would have to understand that they're not being put in there to carry on the way things are, that we expect results. And that could fix the system. But short of that, I don't know. And maybe I'm dead wrong. I don't know. I've always said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not the most intelligent person. Uh, I've had a life full of really oddball experiences, uh, some tragic, some great, and and I formed my opinions on the basis of that, and it seems like people enjoy listening to my point of view, so there you have it, and I'm coming up on my hour mark, so I'm going to call it for this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Uh, my audience has grown a little bit, um, which is great. Uh, I love seeing that. Uh, I can't wait until I sign on and I start seeing like quadruple digits. It's going to blow my mind. But thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, of course, the next episodes are going to be whatever I want them to be because that's how this goes. Uh, more songs, more stories. I just want to be a good bard, man. I want to pass on knowledge and information and do it in an entertaining way. So thank you so much. Everybody, take a deep breath go exercise, hug the people you love. Uh, you know, yesterday was November 3rd when everybody went out and voted. And today on November 4th, the sun rose, the wind blew, more leaves fell from the trees, we're transitioning into winter. And that is something politics has never been able to stop. So please, please take care of yourself. Self-care is important. Drink that alcohol play that guitar, play your, practice your music, damn it. Um, do what you need to do to survive today. Take a bath, light some candles, whatever. Don't get hung up on something that you really can't control. Control the things in your life that you can control and do things that fulfill you and don't chase things that are empty and meaningless. And until next Wednesday, everybody have a great safe day and a good weekend. And I'll tell you how my first week on the new job went. See ya. So I'd asked you
you 